This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Stewart, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Every investor fears a bear market, traditionally defined as a pullback of 20% or greater from stock prices peak, but predicting one is no easy task. My guest today, Peter Oppenheimer, is the Chief Global Equity Strategist in Goldman Sachs Research, and with his team, the author of a new report, Analyzing Bear Markets Throughout History, to help us better understand their causes and characteristics. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Great to be here. Peter, you recently published a report with a great title, Bear Necessities. Why did you write that report right now? Is it because you think there's a bear market coming our way very soon, or does it reflect conversations you're having with our clients? Why the report on bear markets at this point in time? Well, partly because we're not yet in a bear market, and it's always good to stand back when things are looking really good to look at the sorts of things that may change that situation. And we found that, in fact, trying to pinpoint the absolute peak of a market doesn't often make that much sense. It's much more important to identify a change in the trend when it comes and what actually triggers those changes. Generally, I think finally we're starting to see quite significant investor optimism. Global growth is strong and synchronised in a way that we really haven't seen since before the financial crisis. And we've had a long and strong bull market. Profits and margins are at record highs, at least in the US. Valuations are very high. And we're starting to perhaps see the exit of QE, which has been so instrumental in generating the high returns that we've had in equities. So I think all of those are reasons why we wanted to look at this question now. So just when everything is going great, we should worry. Well, at least we should pause think about to it. think about it and okay. um, be well prepared and try to understand the conditions that tend to pre-exist before we actually get a bear market coming through. So in bear necessities, you point out that this particular bull market is defined by the bear market that preceded it, the global financial crisis. And investors have been understandably wary. They've not really embraced fully this recovery. What was unique about the global financial crisis in terms of the history of bear markets? And how does that help explain where we are today? Yes, I think we like to describe this bull market as one of the most unloved in history. You know, it's been one of the longest and strongest, but many people don't really feel it in that way. We haven't seen the typical exuberance that you often get when prices rise in a way that they have done since the worst part of the financial crisis. And part of that is because the financial crisis itself was so significant and impactful. And the bear market that it created, we describe really as a structural bear market because like some others in history, it was really preceded by some major imbalances which unwound and had huge macroeconomic effects and also spillovers into financial markets. And because ever since then, investors have been constantly looking over their shoulders for other potential tail risks that might have evolved, it's been really a very strange bull market which has come in fits and starts. And a lot of that, again, is explained by the unwinding of the imbalances that we were seeing that preceded the financial crisis. When you look at the bull market, the unloved bull market, do you see any major differences? I mean, is the breadth and strength of the bull market similar mm. to others? It is in absolute terms. In fact, this has been one of the longest and strongest bull markets that we've seen in the post-war period, certainly in the US. But it is unusual because it's really come in different waves. 
And that, again, I think, reflects the way that the markets have responded to the unwinding of imbalances that pre-existed the financial crisis itself. We really focus on three waves. The first one, of course, was centred in the US with the collapse of the housing market and the downturn that that created in 2007 to 2009. It had global consequences, as you saw a broadening credit crunch and a very deep global recession. And the response to that was swift and very sharp, in particular through cutting interest rates. And initially, global economies responded positively and started to recover. But we had a second wave really focused on Europe. That became the second epicentre with what's now seen as the sovereign debt crisis, the banking crisis, which really plagued Europe predominantly through 2010 to 2012. And just as things started to recover from that following also very aggressive policy easing in Europe, we saw a third wave which really focused on or reflected a collapse in global commodity prices and then a downturn in emerging economies, particularly around 2014 to early 16. So although in aggregate terms this has been a strong and long bull market, it's actually come in various phases, all of which have looked quite alarming as they've evolved. You and your colleagues explored decades of market data for this report and identified three different types of bear markets. What were the differentiating characteristics you identified, and where does the financial crisis fall into that framework you outlined? Yes, so we looked back at around 200 years of data, predominantly in the U.S., and we found that you could really classify bear markets into different types according to their triggers. And the three that we came up with were what we called cyclical bear markets, event-driven and structural. Now, the cyclical ones, in a sense, are the most common, and they're generally about investors worrying about a prospective decline in profits as a result of a potential recession. And nearly always, they have some kind of monetary driver. In other words, a result of a tightening of monetary policy as inflation picks up late in the cycle. The second group we call event-driven are really, as the name suggests, bear markets that are triggered by exogenous shocks or some kind of one-off factor that increases uncertainty and has a negative effect on financial assets, particularly risky ones. So this might be something like an oil crisis or a build-up in geopolitical tensions or a conflict. And then the third type, of which I already referred which we think that the great financial crisis that we've lived through in the last decade relates to is what we call structural bear markets. And these are different from the cyclical ones because they're preceded really by major imbalances in economies and usually financial bubbles. And it's the unwinding of these which create the bear market itself. Now, the differences are important because both the event and cyclical driven bear markets tend to see prices fall 25 or 30 percent. The structural ones usually 50 or more percent declines. The event-driven ones are very short and sharp. They tend to be all over and done within about half a year, and you're back to where you started within a year. Assuming that whatever the exogenous shock is plays itself out. At some exactly. Level. And the market is adjusted to the higher risk, and you get some kind of readjustment of expectations, but it doesn't have broader macroeconomic implications. The cyclical ones usually take 
two or three years for prices to fall to their lows and then they get back to where they started usually within four or five years. The structural ones are really by far the worst, fortunately the least common, because they tend to take usually four or five years to get to their lows and don't get really back to their starting point, typically for a decade or more. So today everyone wants to know, are we at the end of a bull market or near the end of a bull market in stocks? People either see it as too long or they say prices are too high or they point to the fact that we are nearing a period of monetary policy tightening. When you try to gauge the possibility of an end to this bull market, do any of those arguments hold weight? They do. I think there are some important factors that we need to be aware of which would raise the risks of a potential downturn, but none of them necessarily are catalysts. So you mentioned a couple of them already. It's been a long and strong bull market. That doesn't mean to say that it's going to end, but we're certainly not at the beginning of it. Secondly, valuations are very high. We think this is true across all financial asset markets, largely because of the extent to which lower interest rates and QE have boosted the valuations of financial assets. It's been an interesting period because while in the real economy, we've seen a lot of disinflationary pressures, wages have hardly moved and consumer price inflation has been very low, asset prices across the board have increased dramatically in recent years as a result of low rates and increased valuations. So that's another factor we need to take account of. Thirdly, if you look at the US in particular, which is really leading the global economic cycle, we are at record profits in the corporate sector. We're at record margins. And that, again, would suggest that there's some risk that we're towards the peak of the cycle. And as you quite rightly said, QE has been a major driver of the bull market so far, and we may now start to see an unwinding of it, or at least a slowing of the monetary support that we've enjoyed in recent years. So these are all factors, I think, to take into account. But none of them of themselves are necessarily likely to be triggers for a market downturn. I think what we found in our research is that you really need some kind of reason to worry about an economic downturn. And that typically requires some kind of meaningful tightening of monetary policy. And the absence of inflation still in the real economy is one of the key factors which is holding back the tightening of policy which would end the economic cycle. You were able to identify those factors most correlated with the onset of a bear market. Valuation was one of them. Another was unemployment. You found that when unemployment reaches the low in a cycle, along with high valuation, as it can pretend a pullback in equities. Explain why that is. Well, unemployment is a reflection, of course, typically of a strong economy. And when you have full employment, you typically have full capacity utilisation. The economy is heavily utilised. You don't have much spare capacity. That tends to push up prices, prices of wages, prices of commodities and other factors of production. And it's this sort of rise in prices which tends to lead to a tightening of monetary policy, which ultimately starts to slow economic growth and raise concerns about a potential downturn. It's also the case that in the US in particular, when unemployment has reached very low levels, just small rises in unemployment have nearly always preceded recessions. So when you get to a very low level of unemployment, as we see now in the US and in some other parts of the world, it's usually a sign that we should start to be alert to the potential for unemployment to edge up a bit at a time when inflationary pressures are picking up 
and that raises the risk of a potential slowdown in activity. As monetary policy tries to get ahead of the curve. Right. So similarly, you point out that high readings in the major manufacturing surveys tend to correlate with falling equity prices. Is this a matter of supply simply outpacing demand, or do you see signs of that today? Well, again, it's somewhat related to the point about unemployment. When everything is going well and manufacturing surveys are showing that the economy is being fully utilized, the probability is that over some months you'll start to see a slowdown. Now, a slowdown in growth doesn't mean bad growth, but it's important to emphasize that in anticipatory markets like equities, it's not just the level that's important, but the rate of change, the second derivative. And very often when you get a slowing in the pace of growth at a time when inflationary expectations and monetary policy are tightening, it's that combination together with already pre-existing high valuations that raise the risks. And indeed, in many parts of the world, we are seeing very strong growth right now. And that's to be applauded. That's a good thing. We have a current activity indicator, a Goldman Sachs proprietary indicator, which looks at the pace of global growth. And that's currently pointing to around 4.5%, the best growth that we've seen and the most balanced growth since the financial crisis began. And 90-odd percent of the countries that we cover are seeing growth above their trend. But typically, that's suggesting that over time, things will get less good. And that's a point where we need to be alert to those risks as we revert to the mean at some stage. Right. So today, four of your five factors, a flatter yield curve included, are all signaling bear market. But the fifth seems to hold the keys, inflation. You mentioned mm. that before. Why? Well, I should say that the other four are not telling us that we're about to have a bear market, but the risks associated with them are certainly rising. And inflation is so important here because you asked at the beginning, Jake, about the differences between this and perhaps previous cycles that we've seen. And I think that one of the most dramatic differences between this economic cycle and previous ones is the absence of traditional inflationary pressures. Now, I mentioned that the inflation that we've observed has rather more been in financial assets as interest rates have collapsed and we've seen quantitative easing coming through than we have seen inflation yet in the real economy. And there may be some very good structural reasons why inflation is staying low. Obviously, innovation in technology and disruption in many industries is keeping prices down. We're seeing still the effects of globalization, which is having a dampening effect on everything from wages to generalized prices. And some of this disinflation is very positive. It's giving a boost to consumers and keeping growth strong. And if we can maintain this combination of decent global balanced growth with very low inflation, then that would be a very healthy environment for, in particular, equity markets. But it is worth noting that while global growth is finally normalising to the sort of pace we were seeing before the financial crisis, so far inflation expectations and importantly interest rates have not. And we may find that just small rises in interest rates from these levels as inflation expectations finally pick up, is something that at the very least dampens returns now in financial markets and equities, and at the worst actually triggers some kind of correction. So you mentioned globalization, technology, some of the factors keeping inflation low. What should investors be watching to anticipate when inflation may start to rise and when we may see those warning signs? 
Well, I think, again, what's important here is really expectations. Inflation expectations have remained incredibly low. And one of the reasons for that is that expectations about growth continue to be pretty sanguine. And that's allowing the markets to continue to price a very modest pace of tightening of interest rates, even in the US, where the economy has been growing strongly now for a number of years. I think what we need to be very vigilant of is evidence that we're finally seeing wage pressures picking up, because that could feed through into lower margins in the corporate sector, and also into a more generalised rise in inflation expectations. Now, ordinarily, none of that would necessarily be a bad thing. Obviously, in some ways, rising wages could be helpful. But given now high valuations in markets, and given that the financial markets are still pricing very low and stable interest rates, an adjustment in those interest rate expectations could well trigger some kind of pullback in financial markets. And if interest rates are really the key, what we would likely see in that situation is financial asset prices across the board adjusting downwards. And it would be an environment where most financial markets were quite highly correlated. It would be difficult to protect from that kind of an adjustment. Some prominent commentators, including Nobel Prize winner Robert Schiller, are saying that the indicators that you've been outlining here align particularly well with previous bear markets. So why would anyone, given the circumstances, put money into the market? Is it just lack of alternatives? Well, lack of alternatives is a very good way of putting things. Look, bear in mind, we still have risk-free rates, government bond yields or policy rates at close to zero, certainly in real terms. And there is a necessity and a requirement to get and generate a return. And if you've got a combination of strong growth with still very, very low interest rates, there's a willingness to move up the risk curve into assets like equities. And although their valuations in absolute terms are high, things like PE ratios or cyclically adjusted PE ratios are high relative to history, you've still got a relatively attractive income that they generate compared to what you can get if you lend money to the government or put your money into an interest-bearing deposit. So there's still some relative value there. And as long as investors still believe that growth can be sustained, that value is still attractive. The hunt for yield. The hunt um, for yield, absolutely. Quantitative yeah. easing was obviously a historically unprecedented policy. And its opposite, the unwinding of asset purchasing by central banks rising interest rates will be similarly unprecedented. What will you be watching to see how resilient markets are as QE begins to unwind? An important component here is, again, valuation. I mentioned earlier that we can think of the last near decade as an environment of significant disinflation in the real economy, wages and consumer prices, even commodity prices, at a time when asset markets across the board have done very well, bond markets, credit equities both in DM and emerging markets. But a good deal of that has reflected the impact of quantitative easing, pushing up valuations. Even here in the US, for example, around 45% of the return to investors since the low in 2008 or nine has come from valuation expansion, multiples, P multiples going up. In the case of the European equity markets, for example, where earnings have actually been much weaker than in the US, corporate earnings growth, 
Valuation expansion has accounted for about 75% of the return that equity investors have enjoyed. So there is a big question about the reversal of this quantitative easing, depending on how quickly it happens, whether that pushes down the valuation component of the return, whether it pushes, for example, P multiples lower, and that at the very least reduces the return available, and in a worst-case scenario actually pushes down prices. So I think that QE is going to be important as we see it gradually unwind over the course of the next several months and years. Going back to your three types of bear markets, event-driven bear markets, a little hard to predict, so we'll Mm. take that off the table. But between a structural bear market and a cyclical bear market, which seems more of a risk at the moment? In my mind, a cyclical one is more likely. And that's rather a, a sort of positive thing to say because structural bear markets the are by scary. F- they're the least the, scary, at least of, of those. Of the bears. Yes. Yeah. Now, why do I say this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, structural bear markets really need to see major imbalances unwinding. They tend to result in very deep and long intractable recessions. And typically, they're associated with financial bubbles. And in many respects, I think the period since the financial crisis has seen a lot of those sorts of imbalances unwind, or at the very least, some of these imbalances being shifted away from the private sector or the corporate sector towards the official sector, which means that they can be managed much more carefully. So I think the structural bear market is much less likely. When we've looked at the indicators that we put together previously, Some of the conditions for a more cyclical type of bear market are in place. But again, the key thing that is not yet in place is that rise in inflation expectations, which would push up interest rates sufficiently to a level where investors really start to worry about a major economic downturn. I can picture an investor right now listening to this long discussion of bear markets saying, well, gosh, I'd like to pull back a little bit before there's a significant correction. What can you tell us about how bear markets typically behave and how investors can protect themselves? What advice Mm. do you give to the clients you're talking to? Well, this is a a very interesting question, Jake, because one of the slightly encouraging things that we found looking at bear markets in the past is that trying to predict the actual peak of a market, A, is a very difficult thing to do unless you're extremely lucky. But secondly, may not be that much worth doing. It's much more important to try and identify when the trend changes rather than what the particular day of the peak of the market would be. Give you an example. We found that on average in the US, an investor who might be very clever and recognise that a bear market is coming and sells everything just three months before the peak loses on average the opportunity to see about a 7% rise. That's the typical rise that you see in equities. Right before the the, the bear market kicks in. And that's interestingly about the same size as the fall you get in the first three months of a decline. So someone who sort of pulls out three months early is relatively speaking pretty much in the same position as someone who stays fully invested and waits until the bear market actually starts in order to sell. But the second factor, which is quite interesting, is that in equities, Bear markets very, very rarely start with a precipitous collapse in equities that takes them all the way down to the 30% or so that they finally tend to fall. What nearly always happens is that you get increased volatility around the peak and typically what we describe as a bear market bounce. That is to say, 
all bear markets tend to start with a correction and then very sharp rebound before you get a more persistent decline. So at least theoretically, there's typically a sort of second opportunity to sell the market around that time, assuming that is that you can recognise in real time that the bounce is not just the end of a small correction, but is rather the start of something more severe. And that's the complicated thing, because many times towards the peak of the market, when you do get a correction, people see it as a great buying opportunity, which is in a sense why you get that bounce. But recognising when you get a sharp correction and a bounce, but some of these broader conditions that we've been describing are in place, gives you a bit more confidence that this is really an opportunity to be lightening up on risk. Peter, that's fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jake. That's all for this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on October 16th, 2017. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.